0: Next up, we have Clive Hogarth, who will be presenting on price optimization and TCF. Clive graduated from WITS in 2007 and asked that he not be judged for his time spent in pensions. He may be slow, but he eventually did see the light. He currently works at Guard Risk Insurance, getting involved in various actuarial matters, such as capital management, SAM, and pricing. In addition to applying his skills in the actuarial field, Clive also has a habit of using his skills to make his colleagues' computers sing very loudly and very uncontrollably, a favorite of his being the Spice Girls. From personal experience, think twice before opening any attachments in emails that Clive sends. <laughs> Thanks, Clive.
1: I guess Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, you've heard about my tricks on emails and that. I can assure you all links I send are perfectly safe. <laughs> I think earlier today we had a conversation about dreams, and I've, I've often been accused of saying stuff I shouldn't say but should really be said. So I used to have a dream, and that was, I'd be addressed by the name Mr. Hogarth, C-A-C-A-S-A. Yeah, I dream to be an accountant. So I think there are probably about a 1,000 actuaries who say I've gone past my wildest expectations and have achieved fantastic goals in my life. I'm also aware that there are probably about 36,000 members of Psycho who say I've spent the last 12 years wasting my life. (laughs) I know it's a corny joke. (laughs) So whenever you go to PowerPoint school, sorry, presentation skills, um, they always tell you you've got to start with an agenda. You have to let your audience know what you're talking about. So I'm going to do the same today. I'm going to start with an agenda. As you can see, my agenda is a little bit different. No, I haven't told you what I'm going to speak about. I'm going to say you a few things of what I'm going to say. Yes, I'm going to raise some interesting points. I'm not going to try and make a point of view. I'm not going to use lots of maths to prove a point. I'm trying to encourage debate today. TCF price optimization, if you look overseas and in South Africa, is attracting a lot of attention. And the honest answer is we can sit here and have the debates inside this room here. Alternatively, we can sit in front of carte blanche and try and explain what's going on there. Or we can have front page of the Saturday Star telling us how bad actuaries have done our job. So please, I encourage, today is just meant to start the debate. I'm not giving us a right or wrong answer. I'm here to tr- promote the debate. And please don't feel offended if you see co- colours that resemble the colours of your insurance company. They just happen to be more in line with the ASA slide template I was given. So don't think it would refer to your So you all know about TCF, well I'm hoping we do know about TCF. If you don't recognise this slide that's up there, what I'll do right now is just nod your head because you don't want the FSB meeting you if you don't know what this is. So TCF is pretty simple. It's three letters, it's three words. Treating customers fairly. And yet that has to be one of the hardest debated topics that you can get. I mean, everyone thinks they know what fares. Everyone here believes we know what fares. Go ask a lawyer their definition of fair and you'll realize the world has a warped logic of what is fair. Furthermore, TCF is principles-based. Now, principles-based is wonderful. There's no rules. It's very different to the US. It's very popular in the UK. And the next slide, to be honest, doesn't have anything to do with principles, but does highlight something about a rules-based approach. Enron loved the rules-based approach. They took a dog, they dressed it up as a duck, and everyone was fine with it. The problem with the principles-based thing is it's sort of like an English question. Now, if you're someone like me at school, English was your worst subject ever. Because simply put, the teacher would ask, what do you think Shakespeare meant when he said blah, blah, blah? Clive would honestly respond fairly, truthfully what he thought. I thought Shakespeare was high on drugs. Surprisingly enough, that wasn't the answer accepted by the teacher. And a similar principle applies with TCF as it creates a lot of grey area. There's not a set of fixed rules that if you comply with one, two, three, four, five, you've met TCF. No, it's up to the regulator's discretion. It allows you, as an actuary, to be judged. Different people can have different points of view. We don't need to worry about it. Actuaries, we love being fair. I mean, any pricing actually will tell you the number of variables I'd love to use is significantly greater than they're currently using and they want to use even more next time. We love dividing our market up into smaller and smaller segments of risk. Over time we've used more complicated pricing structures. Our rating models keep on getting more complicated. We want to do this. Why? We believe it's fair to separate risks. Why should I cross-subsidise a poor driver? All of our models look to try and break our market up into the smallest possible segments so that we can price a risk fairly accurately. But maybe there are a few things wrong with this. Medical aid, yes, it's not short-term insurance, but legally you're not allowed to discriminate. You can have a 95-year-old being charged the exact same premium as a 25-year-old. It doesn't matter if you run every day, or eat McDonald's every day, you get charged the same medical aid premium. Yes, it's a different industry, but society has no problem with assigning the same rate to different risks. If we look at European laws, they've come up with the European Gender Directive. They have initially stepped back from their, their original ruling which prevented any discrimination between males and females, but there's restrictions on how you can price between males and females in Europe. So there's no use saying women are good drivers and men don't know how to drive. That's not allowed. The same occurs in the states, where in certain states – you've got to remember the states is 51, 52 countries all with their own laws – certain states don't allow you to use gender discrimination at all. So what you often find in insurance policies, there are a whole lot of extra handbag insurance and other things because they realise that's how you track more women drivers than male drivers. If you think of it, we go completely more complicated into how we rate different factors. How do you explain what a good driver is? I mean, it's not about, well, you're 25, you're male, you're a bad driver. Well, you accelerated harshly on Wednesday at 11.43 PM, and then you brake suddenly at 11.23 PM, and that was, might have been because the truck was there, but no, we're going to interpret you as being a bad driver. It gets a lot more difficult to try and explain to a customer in a simple, clear manner when we have these complicated rating models. And then this statement was made. Whether the increasingly sophisticated underwriting and pricing methods are in the interest of consumers. Now, if none of you have seen this quote before, you're probably sitting there saying that's obviously someone who's got no mathematical background it's some consumer group who actually doesn't understand maths and insurance, and really, I wish I'd be quiet. Perhaps that's what some of you are thinking. Well, that actually was a paper presented at the Actuarial Convention by Rob Rusconi. It is a criticism made of the short-term industry that perhaps some of our detailed underwriting practices are actually not in the interests of insurers, of customers. That actually, when we go and segregate our risks, we're going to get the best interests of a customer. It also makes it more complicated when now, what happens, when does a client need to phone you to say my risk has changed? It's easy if you just had two rating factors. If I change my car, I should phone you. If I change my address, I should phone you. But now customers need to remember to phone you when their address of their employer changes. They need to start phoning you when anything might change and you've got to make sure your customer is aware that there's a million different factors, which we're not going to tell you which ones they are, that might actually change your risk profile. How would you feel if your claim was rejected because you forgot to inform your insurer that the route you took to work may be changed? <laughs> it's an ex- obviously not a practical example, it's not here today, but maybe the future could bring that. But let's talk about price optimization. I've put up a definition of price optimization. That's the definition that appears on from the Actuary magazine. But to be honest, if you look at the United States, about every state uses a different version of price optimization. If you go look at the companies that support price optimization, when marketing to us as the insurers, they'll tell us price optimization is one thing. When they're sitting in front of a regulator, price optimization isn't the same thing they market to the insurers, because that's not very popular. If we look at at its essence, price optimization is taking two risks, identical, but yet those two risks are assigned different premiums. Now the reasons for it might be there's something in your personal characteristics that suggests you won't move insurers, there's something that suggests that you might be able to cross sell different products, but effectively you have two risks that are absolutely identical from a risk perspective being charged different premiums. But to be honest, it's nothing new. I mean, You can sit here and say price optimization is new, but we've been using it for a long period of time. The only difference is we called it underwriting judgment or actuarial judgment. Typically we preferred underwriting judgment because then we could wash our hands of it and it wasn't our fault. (laughs) But think of it, a new business strategy. So you're an insurer, you want to try and get more market share because that helps your loss ratio and everything and it fixes Your fixed expenses go over a larger premium base. How do you get new business? Well, you discount your rates by 10%. You don't obviously tell your existing customers that you've discounted your rates to 10% for new customers, but you discount your rates. You now have two risks being charged a very different premium. If we look at it, comparing quotes, we've all heard adverts, various insurers at different times have got it. Phone us up, and we'll match your quote, or we'll pay you money. Well, so someone who's got a better quote somewhere else and get a cheaper deal because that influenced their risk. Not really. And if none of you have done it, I can assure you, someone in the left or your right of you or one of your friends has done it. As an actuarial student, you got given the job to phone every one of your competitors and suddenly Clive Hogarth from Johannesburg was Mr. Naidu, age 37, out of Durban. <laughs> Why were you doing that? Not to get your risk premium but to work out where in the market you were over or underpriced. Of course some insurers had good data systems so they said but you already have a policy with us so you put down the phone. <laughs> Business retention. Most insurers if you phone them and you complain and you say I'm going to leave, you give them a discount. I'm not sure when giving, complaining that your insurance premium is too high became a rating factor but yes, most insurers will allow some discretion to provide a discount if someone's going to leave. The next one we get to is new rating factors. So we all change our rating models periodically and then prove and they refine themselves and everything. But you end up with a horrible scenario. You take your existing book. You fit your new rating structure to it. And suddenly, someone needs a 50% premium increase. Now you can sit there and say, I'm going to treat everyone fairly. I'm going to treat everyone equally. And I'm going to slap them with their 50% increase, because that's what my rating structure says. The problem with that approach is, one, is giving a 50% increase to someone actually fair? Because it's going to affect your financial position. Two, and probably the one we concern most about, is they're not going to cancel their policy. They're going to Facebook and Twitter, and they're going to spread your name everywhere. They're going to tell all your friends just how bad an insurance company is, and then they're going to cancel your policy. So what do we do? Whenever we apply a new rating structure, we might cap the maximum increase at 10%. But what do we have? We have two risks at two different prices. The other one, and I love it, I guess most actuaries do, is you always have your underwriting department to the marketing department. This is a really important client. They've got a lot of business with us. You've got to cut the rates. If you're lucky, they ask you the question. If you're unlucky, the first time you see it is when you go and review the customer's rate. <laughs> this is a slide from Tiles Watson. If you look at it on your left-hand side, your traditional approach has been to look at claim propensity. That's your risk-based approach. What you're seeing and the way they see the market moving is you're moving more to comparative market analysis. That might be getting your actual students to phone around to compare prices, going to various websites to get comparative quotes. But as people get more and more complicated as we improve our rating structures, as optimization enters more into the market, we're starting to analyze consumer behavior. Suddenly now, the price you're charged is not determined by your risk. It's a combination of your risk and supply and demand factors. We're suddenly now looking to optimize our profit based on risk and supply and demand. And what probably makes most insurers a little bit nervous if you look at this, is most of these presentations around optimization software don't talk about maximizing the client lifetime. They talk about maximizing profit. How can you change retention rates and premium rates to maximize profit? That's not always the case in how you can do price optimization, but I guess the honest truth is you're a business, so most times profit is what matters. And in extreme cases, If you get price optimization and it's a long goal, it's not a simple step, and I'm not sure who here might be at that level, but you'll find identical customers given their own supply and demand curve. What price increase can I give to you before you will leave me? And you might find two identical risks just because of small differences in their personality and behavior are assigned very different premiums, very different premium increases. And one has to wonder, is that fair? perhaps the best place we can look is look to the United States. I think South Africa, we're all probably going to put up our hands and say SAM's a little bit flooding us at the moment. If you go look at Europe, Solvency 2 has kept most of their actuaries busy. But the States has actually been doing price optimization for quite a while, to the extent that they've just actually released a new practice note specifically addressing actuaries' role in rate marking, rate making and insurance pricing. To say there's been a lively debate is probably an understatement. People have gone just short of calling each other four-letter words in the whole process. (laughs) And if we look at the US, I think South Africa's got 50 million people, the US has at least 250 million cars, so this price optimization has been used here fairly effectively. So if you look at what to optimize, most insurers will look to optimize next year's profit. If your corporate company has to be a life company, you're probably going to try and optimize your embedded value. But at the same time, different insurance companies will try and optimize cross selling opportunities between different products. So people offer different prices because they hope they can get business from you in other ways. At the same time, you can also try and optimise the new business that you're going to get on. So, sorry. There are wide ranges in which people can try to optimize what they want to grow. Probably also need to look at different industries. I mean everyone talks about TCF and fairness as us an insurance company. But let's look at another interest in the hotel industry. How many of us actually pay the rate that a hotel puts on their front door? I don't. I go into a website and I find the cheapest deal possible. Lo and behold, I'm paying about 30% of the price someone else might be paying. Now what's interesting is that from an insurance perspective we frown on that. We say that's absolute, how can you do that as an insurer? But yet we're quite happy that it happens in the hotel industry. We're quite happy that Kalula at different pri- times charges different prices for the, same fle- for the same chair on a plane. If we look at a tr- client retention, so that's often where price optimization is used. It's used to try and reduce the amount of customers they churn. So what they'll look at is what factors can influence a customer leaving us. So you might say, well, price optimization is fair. We all know our pricing models are wrong. So actually, where there's lower churn just suggests that's where my pricing model is wrong. And the only, the only reason my customers stay with me is I'm saying there's a 10% increase. When they go to my competitors, there's a 20% increase. So actually, my price optimization is just trying to correct some of the fact that my pricing model is a little screwed up. <laughs> but then some, there's been some other issues. Quite a few of the US companies have looked at your customer complaints history. How often does this customer complain? How upset are they with our service? So naturally, if you're more upset, when they do their price optimization, you'll get a lower premium increase because they don't want to chase you away. One has to worry long-term. You're going to be left with a client base of cheap complainers, and the guy who actually didn't complain is being ripped off. (laughs) Another interesting thing is who are we retaining? I mean, you talk about client retention. Is it really correct to rip off a loyal customer for 15 years? that we're actually going to make the most profits because someone's been loyal to you as a customer. At the same time, the US looked at it and what they found is particularly your low income earners, only a third of those people will actually do a rate comparison on an annual basis. Comparatively, about one in eight high income earners will do a rate comparison. Now, there's a lot of reasons why people say this will happen, but simply put, your low income earners don't necessarily understand the insurance premium. So you're saying, well, they can go shop otherwise. To be honest, they might not know that that choice is that free. The other areas you look at is your uncertain risk premium. I mean, we all, I guess you've got to be very careful in these audiences saying it, but all models are wrong and some are useful. (laughs) And it's very difficult to sit here and say our models are wrong, but we all sit there on the pricing exercise saying if I add this variable, that's the premium and maybe it statistically is at the 90%, percent, 95th percentile, where do we decide what factors to include or exclude? So maybe some of this price optimization is just trying to correct that. We all look at it, how, can we, how much can we actually play around with price optimization? I mean, we all know there's variable ex- expenses, fixed expenses. How much of your fixed expenses are actually variable and how much of your variable expenses will actually can't fire people over a month? So when you start to play with it, perhaps there's an amount that you can vary a premium that's sits within bound of your normal risk premium. So perhaps a 10% variance is fine, because if I'd fitted you using model 95312A, which was rejected, you would have got charged 15% more. So a 10% increase through price optimization is perfectly fine. But then you do start getting some interesting stances that appear. Is in the US, the advantages there, in some of the states, you have to file your, your rates every single year that you're going to be used. So one insurer uses 39 rating factors, the 40th rating factor is viewed as a price optimization rating factor. That can change the premium from 10% to nine times the original premium. It kind of does beg the question, why bother with the original premium? It's all very well. We can rip off an actuary. I mean, who cares? An extra 10 20% on your premium, we can probably all afford it on a motor policy. The difference comes, and there have been a couple scenarios highlighted in the US, is when you start charging, A janitor 67% more premium than what is risk premium. How fair is it to rip off someone who actually might be struggling on a monthly basis to afford the insurance premium? The last point I'm going to make on this is cross-subsidy. We always motivate to have these very complicated rating structures. We love them. It's more variables. It's more maths. It's absolutely lovely. But price optimization can destroy that. We've gone to try and select these exact risks and to price them accurately. And then we say, we're just going to cross subsidize this person's fixed expenses with someone else's fixed expenses. The honest answer is there are multiple views, and you can view them from either side of the coin. So, I mean, these are some of the things that people have been saying about price optimization. Um, Lloyd's TSB spent £12 million and believe they've seen in excess of that benefits. One probably does have to worry about it. This is a London bank that was involved in price fixing, whether it's <laughs> appropriate. Um, but another thing is price optimization reduces the subjectivity by reducing the reliance on judgment in pricing decisions. And then there's a quote here by Robert Hunt, who happens to be, if I'm correct, a fellow of the Casualty Actuary Society which says, recognize how important it is to the credibility of the profession that the actuary calculates rates based on the estimate of future costs associated with the transfer of risk and not on cost related factors. The actuary, I mean, this is our UK provision, uh, profession's official magazine. Price optimization is here to stay, and many companies have been using techniques with great success. But then, if we look at the bottom, Maryland just recently asked its insurers on the 1st of January to stop using price optimization. I guess what I'm trying to get from the slide is there are different views. Some people love it, other people hate it. For some, it's the next saint, for others, it's a definite villain. So, in the end, Price optimization is not necessarily a sin and not necessarily a saint. It depends who you ask. The views are very broad. The honest answer is it's a grey area. Principles-based of legislation gives regulators a lot of power but it also means there's a lot of discretion. You're not sitting with, if I do one, two, three, I've got my right answer. And you might find, as much as there are lots of areas of grey, there are people who see red and there are people who see blue. If, you, if I had to say what I'd suggest, TCF is all about outcomes based. Whatever you're thinking, write it down. It's not necessarily a right answer, it's not necessarily a wrong answer, but at least have an argument that if you have ever challenged on it, you can write down some of your reasoning, some of your thought processes, some of the challenges. Next is be reasonable. I'm almost certain no regulator is going to start saying your price optimization is completely inappropriate when you're sitting with a 75% loss ratio and a 95% combined ratio, and you may be moving prices by 5%. You probably find your regulator is going to have an issue though if you come there with a 30% loss ratio and premiums are varying by as much as 30 to 40%. There's this gray area where we're going to have to decide. And the next thing which I'm hoping I've done today is challenge yourself. Because at the end of the day, we, we can sit here and we can say, let's not challenge it, let's sweep it under the rug. But if you challenge yourself, at least people can say, we've looked at it from different views, we've looked at it from different angles, and we're happy with the decision we've made. Because ultimately you've got to sit back and be happy with the decision. Thank you very much.
0: Anyone have any questions? It's not a question, it's a congratulations. Some of you may or may not know that I'm the chairman of the ACES TCF committee. We are about to change that to the Market Conduct Committee, and I was a co-author of that paper by Rob Lusconi. and the, the, the actual questioning of, of the price of the merchant came about as a personal experience to myself. I uh, threatened to leave my short-term insurance company and eventually I was given a 50% discount. Um, and you know that, that just brought home to me a that I would be an idiot not to have repriced my insurance for the last fifteen years. And I've never been a claimant. I was a perfect a perfect customer. Um, and, and but I'd like to because when we raised this st- subject two years ago from the from the podium, we felt a resistance to the kind of um, if you like questions we were throwing at the at the audience. And what really gratified me is that, that the short-term insurance committee has, has put this item on the agenda, and the life committee did the same at an earlier seminar this year. And I could just encourage that the, that the profession carries on at least raising the questions. Thanks, Clive. That was really good. Um, I, I know you said that you wanted debate, so let's put something out there. Um, how do you think they actually should position themselves when you talk about TCF? Should they? see themselves as a sole crusader to try and deliver TCF? Or do you think it's far more a multi-disciplinary and multi-company effort, and if so, where do we position ourselves? Okay,
1: I guess I don't want to stop the debate, but just quickly, the one thing you can rely on and Andre, and I've known him for a while, is whenever there's a question and answer session, he will always ask a question. Um, he can't help it. Rory doesn't know, well most of us don't know, is today, the 7th of September, is his birthday and he's actually old enough to remember cast oil. So <laughs> if you can all just say happy birthday Andre. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting uh, how does that actually actually present yourself in TCF. Um, I've seen quite a few presentations which will say actually you should be doing this, actually you should be doing that, actually you should be doing this, you should be doing this. And to be honest, I haven't had much experience in a life company, but the limit that I've seen is nothing happens in a life company unless an actuary approves it. The challenge I think we face in the short-term industry is we might actually come up with a proposal, but it actually can get rejected. We're not sitting with a statutory actuary role at the moment where we actually define what rates have to be charged. We can provide recommendations to it, but ultimately there are other business areas that need to contribute it, And to be honest can overrule the actuary. So you might find an actuary who objects a lot to CPI business being overruled by the business units. I think if you also have to, TCF to me is a company-wide role and for us as a profession we have an important role to play. We should make our voice heard. I mean you can't sit there and just say well I'm just going to price it and not say anything. I think we owe it to ourselves to make our view uh, heard. But it definitely is a company-wide approach, and there are different views that should be looked at. I think probably one of the courses I went to while I was still studying was an interesting CT9 course. And it was all about law in that, and to be honest, I shouldn't say it too loudly, but I slept through most of it, and wasn't that interesting. But the one very interesting part was the legal presentation. We got a presentation on a legal case and what happened in a legal case. And I sit there, and I was saying, this is fair. And the lawyer's view of fair was 180 degrees opposite to mine. And in their mind, that was fair. And I think if we just say the actuary is the only person who can do TCF, is the only person who should do TCF, we're probably turning a very blind eye to what other people perceive as fair. And to be honest, they're lawyers and they're underwriters who understand their, their role a lot better than we do. We're useless lawyers. We don't understand Wernie compared to lawyers. So I think we have a very important role to play and should be vocal. But we can't just view ourselves as the sole guiding light to TCF. There's a question, Hannes at the back. Are you stretching your hands?
0: Um, So just when you say we've got a role to play, I'm just um, also thinking um, actuaries are sometimes also encouraged to be kind of commercially minded. And I would have thought that companies um, employ actuaries in certain positions to maximize profits and um, there's probably a couple of people here that are in, that, that you know, management roles or even executive positions that, with the focus of maximising profits. So I think, do you? I mean, your your opinion when you say we've got a role to play, does it then matter what role you employed, uh, you know, employed for in the organisation, or do you think it's? Um, I mean, it is, I understand it's all opinion, but I'd like to just uh, find out what your opinion is. And it might be, maybe it'd be good to hear some other people's opinion, um, if there are executives in the room for insurance companies.
1: Look, I'd welcome anyone else to contribute to it. I mean, probably the example I'd do is, um, and it's a little bit close to my heart, my sister's a doctor. How many of us complain about what we get charged as a doctor? I mean you go there and specialists, and anaesthetists are very good at charging you three times medical aid rates and your medical aid doesn't cover most of it and you look at the bill and you go <coughs> and everyone gets very upset with doctors. The honest answer is at that point in time they could have said this procedure is going to cost you 500,000 rand. It depended on your life. You would pay that 500,000 rand and somehow work out how to pay that money off over a period of time. And if you look at insurance, there are probably cases where we're selling insurance products to people, who, to be honest. That is their livelihood. This matters an extreme amount to them. So just as you don't want to be ripped off by the doctor, I don't think we should use our position of power to rip off, in some cases, some of the poorest poorest South Africans. And to be honest, there are various views. And I mean, the Life Committee just recently presented papers on what a reasonable profit margin is. I can't answer what a reasonable profit margin is. But at least apply our minds to it. And if you ask me, you know, you can make a buck a dishonest way and an honest way. And not I know I sleep a lot more comfortably at night if I've made my bucks an honest way as opposed to a dishonest way. But that's my 50 cents.
0: Any additional comments? Okay, thank you, Clive. (laughs)